Welcome to the second week of our series that we have entitled One, looking at the biblical premise of unity in your life and unity in the church. And that's actually what we looked at last week. We spoke specifically about what does unity look like with us right here, unity look like in the church. Today, week two, we're going to focus in a little bit more on you. What does one, what does unity look like in your relationships? And in particular, how do we love people? How do we love people that are difficult to love? So I want to ask you to do something right now, if you would. I want you to think of a person that you have had either in your past or in your life today, a friendship or relationship of any kind that you can easily look at and say, I know that there are times I've had with that person where that relationship has been strained where something bad happened, there was an argument, there was some kind of difficulty or harsh words. I want you to think about that person right now. And I want you to think about the difficulties that you've experienced with them. Maybe it's even more than one person. Maybe it was absolutely horrible and it was a, a dragged out, knocked down, fight, major argument and you won't even look at each other anymore. Or maybe it's something small. And you're saying, man, we just got under each other's skin a little bit. We're not doing very well. But that is the context of what we're going to be talking about today. So I want you to remember that. I want you to put it in your back pocket right now. Now, if I were to ask most people, what is the most valuable thing in life? I think most people would answer relationships. I don't know that they would point to the money or the job or the corporate ladder or the big house. When it really comes down to it, I think most people would answer it's relationships. Memories of wonderful moments that you have with your mom or your dad. Um, closeness that you've experienced with your brother or your sister growing up. The mystery of falling in love with somebody. Or if you've ever had the privilege of holding a brand new little baby. That's incredible. But on the other hand, if I were to ask the question, what is one of the greatest sources of pain in your life? What do you think the number one answer would be? Well, I think it would probably be the same answer. I think it would be relationships. So when it's not warm and it's not close and it's not propelling your life forward, when relationships actually go south, when relationship with a parent isn't marked with love, it's marked with coldness, it's marked with angry words, or even worse, if there was any form of abuse there, a sting of divorce or betrayal or I can't imagine the horror of having a child that you love, but right now it feels like it's a knife in your heart because the truth is that child doesn't want your love and is rejecting your love. That child is stiff-arming you to say, get away from me. Or maybe it is the reality of loneliness that you experience in your life. There's nothing in the world that matters like relationships, for better or for worse. So today, I want to talk to you about love. How do you love people? How do you love people that are difficult to love? When Jesus came for his ministry on earth, he brought with him a profound understanding of love. I think it changed the world. I think it was absolutely unique, and I think it began a global movement. One of his disciples talks about it. These are his words. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, very fancy word, for how God was appeased, the atonement that was given to God in Christ Jesus. He has been that for us, for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think oftentimes we will love a thing, we will love an object, or we will love another person, and the reason why we will love that or those people is because in and of themselves, they're just very lovable already. We talked last week ever so briefly about that delightful little grandmother that we probably all know, that little granny who's got her hair in a bun and her knitting needles, and every time she bumps into you, she always has a kind word to say to you and a freshly baked homemade chocolate chip cookie and she says that you're special and you're wonderful and she loves you and she's praying for you and she believes in you and you look at somebody like that and it's it's like you're easy to love there's something in you that is so attractive sometimes we look at another person and they just seem so charismatic or they are they're beautiful or they're talented or they're skillful i think the easiest example of this would be hollywood or maybe even, you know, the world of sports where you have athletes and you're, you have someone on your favorite team and you're like, man, they're amazing. I love that guy. She's incredible. I just love her. Look at what they do. And so often, how many times have you heard people say, or have you already said this yourself? You know, I love that car. I, I love that watch. I, I love that house. It looks really, really nice. I wish I could have it. Why do we love these things? Well, because they're easy to love. There is a kind of love that seeks value, right? It's expensive, it's luxurious, it's charismatic, it's successful. There's a kind of love that seeks value in what we love. But there is another kind of love entirely. And it's a little harder to explain. So if you don't mind, I want to tell you a story from an author by the name of Ortberg. Here's the story. He says, it involves Pandy. He says, by the time I met Pandy, she had lost most of her hair and one of her arms and one of her eyes. You see, she was my sister's favorite doll. She loved that doll. A little plastic head and a mostly ragged body. When my sister ate, Pandy would eat next to her. When my sister would sleep, Pandy would sleep next to her. When my sister would take a bath... If my sister could get away with it, Pandy would be in the bath with her. She loved Pandy with a love that was a little too strong for Pandy's own good. But the deal was, and please catch this, if you loved my sister, you loved her ragdoll. It was a package deal. You could not have one without the other. This made our family do some crazy things. One year, we went on vacation all the way from Illinois to Canada, And we were driving all the way home and had almost made it home when we realized that Pandy was not in the car with us. She had not made it home with us. Pandy had stayed behind in Canada. Well, no other option was considered. My father turned the car around and we drove all the way back to Canada. My parents rushed into the hotel. 
and Pandy was found wrapped up in bed sheets about to get washed to death. The measure of our love was that we would drive all the way to a distant country to save that doll. We were a devoted family. Not a very bright family, but devoted. My sister loved that doll. And years passed as they do. And my little sister grew up as little girls will. And eventually she outgrew the doll, Pandy. She traded her in for a boyfriend named Andy, who ironically was even less attractive than Pandy. Really, only the logical thing, the only logical thing to do at this stage was to get rid of the doll. My sister didn't need the doll, didn't look to the doll anymore. She was too big for this doll. The logical thing to do would be to trash the doll, to get rid of it, but my mom could not bring herself to do it. And so she took that ragged little doll and she wrapped her up in tissue as though she were worth a million dollars. She was placed carefully in a box and stored carefully in the attic. And she was kept there as a treasure for many, many years. My sister loved that doll with a love that made that doll precious to anybody who loved my sister. Again, love my sister, love the rag doll. They are a package deal. And probably many families here know what I'm talking about. You have something that is sentimental to you, something nostalgic. Maybe it's a little blanket, or maybe it's some little plastic toy, or a ratty little pillow, or it's a teddy bear. My sister eventually grew up and she got married, not to Andy, but to a much more attractive man named Greg. And they had a little girl whose name was Courtney. My sister decided this little doll, this ragged little doll, Pandy, should go to her girl, Courtney. So they found the box in the attic and they took her out. But by now, after so many years, Pandy was more rag than doll. So they took Pandy to the doll hospital. They actually have such places. And Pandy got Botox or liposuction or whatever it is that they do for dolls until at last she looked as beautiful on the outside as she had always been in the eyes of my sister who loved that ragged little doll so much. For there is a love that seeks value in what is loved. And we all know that. We all know that easily. Something that you say, that's easy to love. That person is easy to love. Sure, look at them. Look at what they bring. Look at what they contribute. There is a love that looks for what is beautiful or expensive or luxurious or brilliant or successful or has status. There is a love that seeks value in what you love. But then there is a different kind of love entirely. There is a love that actually creates value. And that is a bedrock foundation of one, of this principle of unity for your personal relationships. A love that actually creates value in what is being loved or in whom is being loved. Ragged little dolls. And maybe sometimes, me and you. There is a love that creates value. J.K. Chesterton is commenting about the classic fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast. These are his words. He says, this is the lesson of Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved 
before it is lovable. Belle came to a point where she fell in love with a monster before he was a handsome prince. And this is the revolution that Jesus brings into the world. He loved that which was unlovable. It is what began this precious thing that we have here that is called the church. Our ultimate calling for anyone here today who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ is to love God passionately, to love him with all of your intellect and your will and your strength and your body. But perhaps the very best expression that you can give in terms of how you love God is how you proactively, deliberately, concretely, concretely love not just people, unlovable people, people who are difficult to love, even in this room especially in this room, and critically, even for people who are not in this room yet. John, who we read earlier, he writes further words. He actually begins to talk about himself ever so briefly. And John has a nickname. We don't really know where he got the nickname from, if the other disciples gave it to him, but I have a feeling that John gave himself this nickname. Here's what it says. He describes himself in John chapter 13. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a little code name. It's a little nickname. John is talking about himself. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, didn't Jesus love all the disciples? Yes, Jesus loved all of the disciples, including Judas. In fact, he was the master at loving people. But it took a very particular form in John. Theologian N.T. Wright talks about this to say, most likely, and I haven't met a theologian who would disagree with this, most likely John was probably the youngest of all of the disciples. So John actually lived a longer life than the rest of all the disciples. In fact, the majority of the disciples lost their lives in the prime of their lives because they were martyred. But John was not martyred. He actually lived to be a ripe old age, and instead of losing his life, he was imprisoned to a hostile Roman guard on an island by the name of Patmos. But in that culture and in that day, to be young actually wasn't a good thing. It's the reason why people complained when children came to Jesus. To be young actually meant that you lacked status. To be old meant that you had and carried with you a sense of importance and status. So part of what John would have understood is that he was the youngest of all the disciples, that he was the least, the least strategic disciple, the least mature disciple, the least of this group. I get it. I'm young. I'm ragged. I'm pandy. But here's my identity, and he says it over and over again in Scripture. I'm the one that Jesus loved. I don't know why. I can't explain it. I certainly didn't earn it but that's who I am. And then he writes about this other kind of love. He says, beloved, let us love one another. Now, I know that little word, beloved. I know it sounds um, old-fashioned. People probably don't use that in common conversation anymore. Beloved. I know it sounds like the kind of word that you'd pull out for a wedding ceremony, and it sounds a little cliche. But you have to understand, that word changed the world. The idea that John is writing to the world and that he's calling you beloved. 
Not because of your success or your brilliance or your beauty or your money. He is simply saying, in Christ, I'm calling you beloved and I'm commanding you to love other people. It is the answer to the question that this world has struggled with for a long time. Let me give you this question. What is a human being worth? Ever thought about it? What is a human being worth? And people have given all kinds of answers to that question for many, many years. But it is a very real question. You can ask the question very easily, what is my car worth? And you can look at, well, what year is the car? What's the mileage? What's the condition? And then you can get a thing that's called Blue Book and you look it up and you will find a pretty good, accurate assessment of the value of your car. If you want to know what your house is worth, you can do the same thing. There's a website called Zillow.com and you can just punch in your address and up will come a picture of your house and an estimate as to the value of what your house is worth. But actually, that's not entirely true. There is another house in this country that is called Mount Vernon. And nobody here in this church could possibly afford to buy this house. Certainly not based upon its condition or its size or the typical things that you would look at a house and say, oh, well, there's a square footage, uh, it has a new roof, or it has these amenities, or it has a swimming pool, or a nice deck, or I like the landscaping. That's not how you value it. It's actually the value of this house is based on who it belongs to, who used to live in that house. And actually, it was a fellow by the name of George Washington. It's priceless because it's his. Because when you honor that home, you honor the one who made his home there. It has an entirely different and special kind of worth that is not based on the typical things that you would value any house by. There's a Christian philosopher, a fellow by the name of Nick Walter Storff, and this is the phrase that he has coined to describe this. He calls it bestowed worth. I like that. This is worth and value that is not earned because of something that you did. It is worth or value that is simply given and attributed as a gift. Now back to the question. What is a human being worth? Now you could say, and many people have said this over the centuries of different, uh, different peoples and different cultures, well, it depends on the person. It depends on their age or the color of their skin or their strength or what it is they can contribute. Walter Storff says something very different. He says, it's actually quite fascinating. It turns out to be essentially impossible to find any kind of secular foundation in terms of a logic or a rationale. Any kind of foundation outside of God on which you can base the dignity and the value of a human being. If you try to do that in a secular manner without God, here's the number one answer that always comes up. Well, we believe human beings have value and dignity because of their capacity for reason and rationale. That's the number one argument that usually pops right up. But here's the problem with that argument. What if a person has a diminished capacity for rationale? What if they get into a car accident? What if they're in a coma? What if they're born with health issues in their life? Does that therefore mean that they have diminished value and diminished worth? 
I certainly don't want to say that. I don't think anyone here wants to say that. Everybody, including people who have no belief or regard in God, they want to say and believe that every human being has a sense of deep value and worth. It just turns out that it's very difficult to find a basis on which to, to, to find that except to simply say that there is a God and he is supremely good and he stated that he loves human beings. That God says this, catch this, love me, love my ragdolls. It's a package deal. You cannot have one without the other. You have bestowed worth and it is not based on your skills or your beauty or your look or your age or your strength or your bankroll. How many of you got the message in your life? And I bet you, you were young when you got this message. And here's what it sounded like. Oh, look at her. She's beautiful. Look at how strong he is. Look at her hair. Look at her face. Look at how smart they are. Look at his body. And eventually everyone, it, we just, we get it. So for me to be loved, for me to have value and worth, I need to be beautiful. I need to be smart. I need to be strong. And then what happens is very quickly we realize, I don't know that I'll ever be strong enough or young enough or beautiful enough. Here's the deal. That doesn't matter. When it comes to the worth of a human being, your worth does not depend on how pretty you are or how smart you are or how well connected you are or what car that you drive or what house that you live in or what your bankroll looks like. I'm going to ask you this morning to sit up straight. Your worth rests on this. Listen carefully. You are a child of the king. You are the beloved of God. You are the object of his intense affection. You are a citizen of heaven. You have been named an heir of Jesus Christ. Dallas Willard puts it like this. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And as if that weren't good enough, it actually gets better. And When Jesus came, this is what he says. If you want, you can ask me. And if you ask me, I will come and the Father will come and we will make our home in you, in your life, in your body. We will become residents inside of you. So here's the key piece of unity for your life, for your relationships, the key piece of unity for this church. I've prayed that prayer. Me, personally, I pray that prayer. Jesus, Father, come into my life. Take up residency inside of me. So now, check this out. You have to be really careful with how you treat me. I understand that I'm ragged, and I understand that I still have plenty of really ugly corners, but here's what you really need to know. I'm worth more than Mount Vernon because somebody greater than George Washington has come into me and calls me home. And you can have that too if you want. Here's how one, here's how unity works. This is how the church functions. This is how anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ functions. Even the most unlovable person in this room, the person who thinks that they are the worst, the most shame-ridden, the person who's done the worst thing, you're convinced of it in your mind, even that person, we treat that person with undeserved value and respect and honor. It's a package deal. 
Love him, love his ragdolls. And to disregard or to speak ill or to disrespect or to show any form of unkindness or cruelty, to be passive towards another person, to merely tolerate them or to ignore them or to neglect them or avoid them or to manipulate them or hurt them or wound them or gossip in any way about another person is unthinkable in the house of God and with the people of God. Why? Because they bear the Father's image. The Spirit resides inside of them. And you are called to create value in those that you love. This idea that human beings were made and that they have worth and value, made in the image of God, that they're loved by God, it has literally changed the world. This notion of worth Dignity, honor, respect, equal, uh, the nobility of human beings. This was not common in the ancient world. If you were sick, if you were blind, if you were a leper, if you were a child, if you were a woman, you were a second-class citizen. That was not a common thought. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he spreads this truth. We take it for granted. There are even places in the world today that don't have a, a foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, and yet this truth is actually rolled in. Aristotle, Plato, Genghis Khan did not hold that truth to be self-evident. Every human being is of equal worth. That came from Jesus Christ. We are his community. And John says to us, Beloved, okay, bestowed worth, ragdolls. If God loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says this because it's easy to come to church and to think, love is good. I agree with you, pastor. I'm pro-love. It's easy to think like that, but then when you bump into a person who's difficult to love, that goes out of our minds. It goes out of our practice, out of our language. What makes a church great is not impressive programs. It's not buildings. It's not numbers. It's just love. It's just love. What makes a life great, what makes you great, particularly in the context of difficult relationships, oddly enough, is not what we were told it was all our lives. It's not how beautiful a person is or how smart they are or how successful they are. It's just love. It's not a sentiment. It's not about pleasing people. Here's what it is. It is to will their good as God intends their good. That's what love is. And John says this, Dear children, dear ragdolls, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Do you remember at the beginning of our time what I asked you to put into your back pocket? That relationship that you know of where it's not pleasant and it's gone south I want you to remember that person right now, that strained relationship, that difficult person in your life. You see, there is a love that only looks for those who are smart or rich or beautiful or strong or successful, the person who has it all together. And we've got to move past that. There is another love entirely that creates value, even in difficult people, even in unlovable people. And that is what we do. We are all of us, every one of us, really ragged characters, ragdolls, but we're God's ragdolls. 
Therefore, you don't trash anybody. Your treatment of another person is akin to the treatment that you give to the one who lives inside of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the call to be one as a church and today in our own relationships. Thank you for the call to love. Thank you for the gift of unity in the church and with those people in our lives that are easy to love and those who are difficult to love. Today, we will take our cue from you. For you are the one who has loved us when we were unlovable, knowing the worst thing about us, knowing our betrayal, our rebellion, knowing how ragged we are. You are the one who has placed bestowed worth upon us. And God, we're not going to fight with that. We're not going to argue with you about that. We are simply today going to accept that as truth with great gratitude that we are image bearers that we look just like our dad. And we will take that truth and we will make it more than words and speech and we will turn it into action and truth so that the very next person in front of us experiences their worth and dignity, the worth and dignity that you say is true of them. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Love you, church. God bless. Have a good week.